there doesn't seem to be a real through line to the experiences I've had other than I didn't want to regret anything. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say, I, I tried, I, I did that because it was important to me. Welcome to the clear choices podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome again to Clear Choices. This is Rob Eigner. Super thrilled to have the guest that we have today. He's done something incredibly unique. So let me tell you about Brian Wilson, not the Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, by the way. This Brian Wilson grew up in Portland, Oregon. He was an elite athlete and also an elite student who ended up playing NCAA basketball at the prestigious Pomona Pitzer College for none other than Coach Greg Popovich, who is now the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Brian is now, at age 54, a semi-retired technology consultant. During his 20-plus year career as an entrepreneur and corporate executive, he focused on technology innovation and new product development, managing global product teams for such brands as Nike, AT&T Wireless, and Research in Motion. He also pioneered the development of indoor mapping, navigation, and location products as a founder and vice president at Point Inside, a Seattle-based tech company. He's been granted 25 patents and is responsible for developing many industry-first products, such as the first indoor maps and locations-based product for mobile devices and the first wireless music store. Brian is married with two dogs, and none of that is the reason why Brian is a guest on the show today. He's a guest because he's done something that millions and millions of Americans fantasize about doing, but they never have the courage to act upon. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here with you. I appreciate it. So tell us, what is it that you've done that millions and millions of Americans fantasize about doing but never do? Well, I think what you're probably referring to is essentially leaving uh, my life in the U.S. behind and moving to a foreign country, becoming an expat. Amazing. Yes. I mean, I can say for sure it is something I've thought about so many times I can't even count. And I always try to do the calculations in my head of how would I make this happen? How could I make this happen? So tell us, first of all, how did you make it happen? And then second of all, I want to talk a little bit about the decision tree that got you there. Sure. Well, about three years ago, uh, my wife and I both retired and we didn't really have a good understanding of what we were going to do next. And one night she just simply said, you know, I really enjoyed my time living overseas when I had that opportunity. What would you think about leaving the country for a while? Mm -hmm. And you know, it was not something I had considered ever, um, but the more we talked about it, the more attractive it became. And there were a few reasons for that, but essentially, 
as we talked more and more about it, we decided to really pursue it. And the first step in that was doing the research, trying to determine, well, where would we go? What countries would be easiest to get into? Um, what countries, you know, welcome expats, for example? And realistically, how could we execute on this? And what countries made your top three or top five? Well, I've got to be honest with you. One of the key criteria we were looking for, uh, we lived in Phoenix at the time. And one of the problems with Arizona is the summers are incredibly hot, Uh, not comfortable being in Arizona in the summertime. And so we decided if we were really going to do this and, you know, sell our house, uh, give away most of our possessions and move somewhere else that we wanted to be in a place where the weather was going to be good all year round. We're both kind of sunbirds and uh, really enjoy the warm weather, but not too hot. And so that was kind of the key criteria that we looked at to start with. And really there weren't that many countries that fit the bill. Our, our top two, as it turned out, was, uh, were Portugal and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we ended up visiting Portugal, uh, the Algarve region, which is beautiful. It's on the southern coast of Portugal, and it's an amazing place. But after visiting there, we decided that it was just a little too far away. It was too difficult to get back and forth. We both still have family here in the States. And possibly like business connections or whatever. Yeah. You know, we didn't really think about the business side of it. As I said, we were both retired at that point and didn't really plan on working anymore. But as, as we'll get to in the story, that, um, that circumstance changed and that changed the equation a little bit. But at the time, really our main considerations were what kind of environment is going to be comfortable for us, not only from a weather perspective, but as I said, just what countries could we easily get residency in Mm -hmm. and, you know, get all of the benefits of, of that particular country without too much difficulty. For example, you know, many European countries don't allow Americans in for longer than six months or what have you. And so we really were thinking about this as a permanent or semi-permanent. We really kind of had a five-year time horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were thinking about it as a it's that time horizon. But to to enable that, we would have to get a residency status in whatever country we chose. Let me ask a question really quick. So as you're going through the kind of fact gathering, and obviously you travel to multiple places to help determine and make your ultimate decision. Was this scary? Was it exciting? Was it, was there any fear or concern or was it all just like, man, I can't wait. This is going to be fantastic. Um, it was, it was both of those things, scary and exciting. Um, I would say 60% scary and 40% uh, (laughs) exciting. So, so talk to us about the fear, like what was scary and what, what were some of the bigger choices you had to that required you to overcome something? Sure. Well, the biggest concern I personally had, um, I don't think it was shared by my wife because she 
was more excited about this aspect of it than I was, but that is the language. So wherever we were going to go, we knew that we were going to have to uh, really dive in and maybe not become fluent, but certainly uh, be able to, to make our way in a new country with a new language. And obviously there are places you can go um, and communities where uh, a lot of English is still spoken, but that was not really of interest to us. We wanted to immerse ourselves in, in the new culture, and part of that was learning a new language. Mm-hmm. And I personally have never been good with languages. Uh, as I said, my wife is excellent with languages, so she was excited about that and didn't have any fear of that. I was worried about what kind of impact that would have and how difficult it would be for me personally. So weather, climate was a key consideration. Language is a key consideration. Did uh, affordability come into play in your in your considerations? It did. You know, fortunately, we felt like we were uh, fairly economically comfortable. So it wasn't the major consideration. Um, a lot of people, for example, moved to Mexico because it's a lot cheaper to live on a day-to-day basis. And that's their primary decision-making for, right. for that a move. Lot of, yeah. You know, there are a lot of people who are on a fixed income and when they get to retirement age, you know, money goes a lot further in Mexico than it does in the U.S. So I just want to say one thing you're, you're triggering for me. Um, my wife and I traveled to Costa Rica maybe, you know, 15 years ago and we met a retired postal carrier, a U.S. postal carrier there and who had retired and settled in Costa Rica. And we got to talking to him because I found that interesting as I still do and why you're on the show. And, uh, and he got, he was willing to get very specific with us that between his pension with the post office and whatever social security he got, you know, he was bringing in, you know, $4,000 a month of income and he was living like a king in Costa Rica and would be struggling here. Well, I think it's really common, uh, for people to have that as, as a key reason for, for making the jump, um, it wasn't so much for us. Now, having said that, it was a consideration only, if only, to mitigate long-term economic risk. And so it, it, I wouldn't say that it was a primary driver, but it was in the back of my mind thinking, you know, if we spend five years in a place that's a lot cheaper to live, what would that do to impact our standard of living if we do come back to the state. It gives you more options. Yeah, it just makes it easier. So clearly, you know, you visited Portugal. It was kind of between Portugal and Mexico. You picked Mexico and uh, and that had proximity to the states, had the weather you wanted. It happens to be affordable. So that was an added plus, even though it wasn't a driving force for you guys. So, but here's the thing I wanted to read just so the audience has a little bit of a sense of how rare it is the choice that you and your wife made. So a majority of Americans living abroad do not live far from the States. 900,000 live in Mexico, 800,000 live in Europe, 740,000 are in Canada. And then there's 700,000 surprisingly to me in India, 600,000 in the Philippines and 185,000 in Israel. Those make up the top other country destinations for Americans. And then also we touched on some of this. The primary reasons people decide to move to another country, 
Number one is finances and cost of living. Number two is services, probably health-related. Weather, number three, retirement, politics, employment, and family. So I just thought that would be uh, interesting uh, stuff to point out, obviously a number of which were pertinent to you as well. Yeah, we didn't touch on politics or uh, health care, but I will say that both of those did have an influence in our desire to at least temporarily leave the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. Uh, I think a lot of people can resonate with that as well. Now let's flash forward. So you sell your house in Arizona, you consolidate your assets, whatever that looks like, and you move to Mexico. What happens? Talk, walk us through it. <laughs> well, um, as you as you stated earlier, we have dogs, and to be honest with you, that was one of the. Uh, real concerns on day one in Mexico is we had four dogs at the time and they're all chihuahuas and flying down with four dogs and multiple suitcases and making sure that all the paperwork was, was done correctly to get the dogs through customs was really a lot of stress. I mean, it was a ton of stress organizing all of the logistics you know, selling the house, getting rid of all of our, or many of our possessions and, and starting this new life in a foreign country, all of that was extremely stressful. But at the end of the day, the thing that, that was most stressful for me was, are we going to be able to get the dogs through customs? <laughs> is the, is the person who was supposed to, to, um, meet us, uh, at the airport, and take us to our home that we were going to rent, is he actually going to show up? And what happens if he doesn't? So I'm, I've got my fingers crossed. Did that work out? It did. Um, <laughs> we had, you know, as a lot of these things usually do, you find a way to make it work and your worst fears are never realized. But that having been said, you know, we had arranged to rent a house when we got there or, you know, previously. And as I said, the guy who was uh, supposed to to pick us up, he did end up showing up. He was a little late, but um, he got there. We got bundled into his truck and made the trek from Guadalajara to a little town called Ajijic, which is on the largest freshwater lake in Mexico, Lake Chapala as I said, about 30 miles south of Guadalajara. And how did you guys pick that location? Well, uh, getting back to the weather criteria, it, uh, according to National Geographic, has the second best weather in the world. Wow. (laughs) So it's generally between 75 and 85 degrees year round. There is a rainy season and a dry season, but when it does rain, it almost only rains at night. And it's a very uh, lush kind of Hawaii-like uh, environment. And so it's, it really is, from a weather perspective, just ideal. Um, so that was uh, you know, a big consideration. And it has a pretty thriving expat community. There are quite a few Canadians and Americans uh, there who go there to retire. And, and, and how big was that community approximately? So this little town um, has about 10,000 people, 
And there's a town uh, fairly close by with probably another 20 to 25. It's a little larger, a little more Hispanic, uh, not quite as many expats. So, you know, Ahihik is really uh, known as a retirement community for Americans and Canadians. And they they do cater to that, mm-hmm. which was kind of a pro and a con. I mean, like I said, we really wanted to have uh, an experience where we were forced to engage with the culture and uh, forced to learn the language and so on. And but, but it was probably comforting too to know there were some fellow expats that you might catch a football game with or something. It, it <laughs> was. I mean, there was a very, as I say, a thriving expat community, and it did provide some comfort when we got there and everyone was very helpful and accommodating and you know really wanted to make us feel welcome. Um, both the Mexicans and the the Americans and Canadians. So, so Brian, tell me a little bit about what was challenging, right? So, you know, you had to purchase property, build a home, get internet, get driver's licenses. You had all these things you had to do. You had to recreate your life. So what, what was easy and what wasn't? Well, I think um, almost everything was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, you know, that, that was a kind of a, a, a rude awakening. I, you know, in the U S yeah, things are challenging. You, you know, nobody likes to go to the DMV. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, but in Mexico, uh, it really was about who you knew mm-hmm. and how much you were willing to pay. <laughs> From just this conversation, I get that you knew nobody, so that that, right. that wasn't working for you. <laughs> no, um, the interesting thing, though, is that you know once you show up, um, and there are people there who, again, who share your nationality, they've all been through the same thing, and so they're incredibly willing to be helpful and to provide insight into how they navigated. And we really leveraged that knowledge um, and made connections and, and built a network fairly quickly. Sounds like you found a lot of shortcuts. Well, yes and no. Um, <laughs> we joked about it because the, the saying was, well, everybody has a guy, right? It's, <laughs> okay, we'll call this guy. I've got a guy who knows how to do that. I've got a guy. And these guys were inevitably, you know, Mexican nationals who could help grease the wheels, if you will. It reminds me of uh, Pulp Fiction where they had uh, Mr. Wolf. Do you remember that character? Oh, completely. Yeah. The, the fix-it the fixer. guy. The yep. fixer. <laughs> well, so. and that's the funny thing is you could always find somebody who knew their way around the bureaucracy or just to get something done. Buying a car, for example, was incredibly difficult because they needed to have three months of bank statements from you before they would sell you a car. It didn't matter if you wanted to pay cash or not. They, and, and could you use American bank statements? No. You had to be Mexican bank it statements. It had to be a Mexican bank statement. Yeah. And so there the- all these types of things where it was always a catch-22. You needed X to do Y, but you couldn't do X without first doing Y. So I'm finding myself getting irritated already. 
<laughs> just, <laughs> just hearing this. <laughs> oh, it, it really takes some getting used to because, you know, here in the U S you, you know, particularly with my background in technology and, you know, project and product management and Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, it, there's an urgency to everything. Mm-hmm. And there's an expectation of accountability. And when there's no such thing, it is a total switch from what you're used to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest impact on people moving particularly to Mexico. In this case, there never seems to be a sense of urgency around anything. So the positive side, Brian, is you grew your ability to be patient. Absolutely. That's <laughs> that's one way to look at it. I always try to look at the bright side. And you got it there. <laughs> um, yeah, it, you have to. You have to grow in that way living there because otherwise you would just go insane. You just have to have some acceptance. So, So tell me... Uh, and I, and I hear, I hear what you're saying. It totally makes sense to me. And I've heard it from other people. So I'm certainly not surprised by it. So what, tell me what some of the better parts of being there were like, you know, I know you told me in, in preparation, you had an amazing home, for example. So tell me, tell me some of the great things about it. We heard one of the negatives. So let's hear about sure. some of the, the pluses and minuses. Well, we talked about the weather. That's clearly, that was, uh, amazing. But what really, I think, surprised me almost more than anything, I don't know why it should have, but the the people that we met, uh, the Mexicans that we met, almost to a person were just so incredibly friendly and gracious and welcoming. Mm. We were just so touched by um, how kind and and accommodating and helpful people were. And did you um, find that to be far greater than the proportion of people in America that you would find to be outgoingly kind? I think so. Um, I suppose it, it depends maybe on where you are, but you know, by and large, this was, as I say, almost a hundred percent of the people were, were just fantastic. Well, and, and you, they, and you would know you've lived in You've lived in Portland, Oregon. You lived in Southern California. You lived in Washington D.C. and you lived in Phoenix. So you've had a pretty good cross section of America. Yeah, and and I think you know what again was amazing was we didn't really speak the language. At least we didn't speak it well at all. And, and people were just very forgiving, mm-hmm. and and really wanted to to help you. And you know there was never a sense of people being frustrated with us not being fluent in the language or, you know, as long as, as long as you were trying a little bit, people wanted to help you. Nice. So that was really uh, amazing. Um, well, did you, fi- what did you find yourself filling your time with? Well, you mentioned the house. So one of the things that we wanted to do was essentially build the quote unquote dream house. Um, and we thought, you know, this is something that we would have an opportunity to do that we might not have an opportunity to do in the U.S., believing that we could get it done less expensively in Mexico than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't turn out that way, but we did kind of take the plunge and 
designed and and had built um, a house. Uh, so we bought the property and designed, you know, we had an architect uh, that we were working with, but by and large, we did the design ourselves. Um, and so that was really a lot of effort. Uh, it took about a year, uh, almost a year and a half from the time we started uh, the architectural drawings to finishing the construction, which is longer than it would have been in the U.S. And I think more difficult from a process perspective, just because they take a different approach than than we would in the U.S. I mean, the house, the construction itself was really good, really solid, but the way in which they approach construction is is so different because they just throw people at it. You know, it's not about automation or machinery, you know, it's getting a hundred guys out there with shovels rather than one guy with a backhoe. And everything, almost everything is done by hand. Yeah, it just so it, it just takes longer. Yeah, it takes longer and and in a way, you know, they they want to provide employment for people, which is great. You know, construction and building is a trade down there that's valued and it creates a lot of employment, but it does. It, it takes longer and, you know, we had to be there every day to make sure that something didn't go wrong or wasn't done according, you know. So you, kind of, so you kind of answered two questions. One question was, you know, you built a house. What was that like? And the other question was, what did you do with your time? And it sounded like, the house construction project took a big chunk of the time that you've been there. Yeah, it, it did. Um, it took a lot more time and effort and energy and focus than we anticipated. Not all of our time, but it was, it was definitely a focus. So that was one thing, you know, there, there are a lot of retired people. We had a fairly active social life there and, you know, it was, now, was that more with native Mexicans or with expats? Almost exclusively expats. Uh-huh. And the social life was tennis and golf or dinners or all of the above? Mostly, mostly dinners, drinks, uh, just kind of socializing in an informal way. Did you feel like you're on a permanent vacation? How did this all land on you? It's a really good question. Um because it really wasn't something that we considered strongly before we left. I had essentially just stopped working and I didn't really know what I was going to do to fill my time. Now the, the house took a lot of it, but, and then there was some socializing, but we were left with a, a big gap. Um, sure. And, you know, we, we did some, some traveling. We, spent time walking around town and so on and so forth, but that can only uh, be interesting for so long. And what ultimately happened was we both realized, my wife and I, that we missed working. Mm, interesting. We missed interacting and using our skills that we had developed over our careers. and Having some challenges. To and having, yeah, having those challenges. So did you find a way to integrate work back into your newfound Mexican lifestyle? We did. My wife ended up getting 
essentially her her dream job, which was it just came out of the blue, uh, not something that we had planned on and anticipated, and yet sometimes you know the strangest things happen when you're not looking. Yeah, and so she ended up spending a lot of time at this this new job. I ended up doing some uh, consulting that I hadn't really planned on doing, but like I said, it was it was something I missed. And so you were just doing this over the phone or over a Zoom call or that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, with a little bit of travel uh, uh-huh. back to the States. Um, so it wasn't a lot of work for me. It was much more for my wife, and she was essentially working full-time. But it did make me realize, particularly looking at the other expats in the area who were fully retired and really spending their time either socializing or playing golf or, you know, just gardening or or what have you. And, and that's great. That's, that's fine if that's the way that you want to spend your time. But I think my wife and I both felt that we still had a lot of energy and something to give. It's interesting, you know, because again, the, the first of all, the bold choice you made to move to a new country, that is something a lot of people fantasize about. And the other thing that a lot of people fantasize about, whether they're doing it at home or in a new place abroad, is not working. And, <laughs> uh, and having, you know, myself been retired or semi-retired at a similar age as you and finding new and different pathways, it's really interesting when you're on the other side of that. You're like, oh wow, what now? What do I do? You know, because <laughs> so it's 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 like you can only go surfing so many times, or or work out, or or you know, have lunch with a friend, and then at some point you're like, I, I gotta get some purpose back here. Right. Well, I think that's really uh, an important word, purpose. Mm-hmm. The benefit of having some financial security and stability is that you have choices around how to spend your time and what your purpose can or should be. And I'm not convinced that I've fully found and embraced mine yet, but I do know that it's not playing golf and having drinks on the veranda. Mm, Every day. Yeah. Yeah. So now you bring up a good question and it wasn't necessarily a place I had planned to go, but I think it's valuable You know, obviously people, like I gave the example of the postal carrier in Costa Rica, you don't have to be wealthy or have a net worth, so to speak, to be able to go live abroad. And that gentleman was an example. But having said that, you and your wife clearly built up some financial comfort that gave you the freedom at the ages of, you know, 54 to be retired, which again is not the norm. So talk to us a little bit about the financial choices you've made, I'm not trying to dig into the specifics of your portfolio, but more just trying to understand your philosophy of living and saving and investing and you know creating a safety net so you could have these choices. Right. Well, you know, I think it's difficult to uh, to know how to answer that other than to say that I think we've been fairly conservative mm-hmm. economically over time. We don't spend a lot of money on things that aren't truly important to us. And I think that's the important thing is to understand what's important to you, what you want to spend money on, 
um, what's worth spending money on. And we have, have taken a very conscious approach over many years to only spend the money on the things that, that are really, truly important to us. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that along with, a you know, investing, uh, again, not speculatively, conservatively. Um, but conservatively, uh, with enough risk over time, uh, I'll put us in the, in a position to where we did have these choices. Well, if I can, if I can interject there, you know, what I love about that, like it's, it's simple and in a way it's obvious and yet so few do it. And, you know, I, I often in my, my shows here, I, I reference my parents and my parents are people who always lived under their means, never spent on the frivolous, never suffered. I mean, we weren't, we went on a vacation every year and we had good food to eat and we didn't have ragged clothes and all that kind of thing, but we didn't live a lavish lifestyle. And yet they were able on, you know, modest kind of blue collar incomes were able to tuck away enough money so that they too have sort of the same financial freedoms that you do. And, uh, and I think that's a really important message, you know, that we're talking about this. Cause I think uh, as obvious as it is, it's like, Hey, try spending less than you earn. Just try that as an economic philosophy 101, spend less than you make. What do you say, right. America? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, aside from being conscious around where your money is going and, and accounting for it uh, on an ongoing basis, really understanding where it's going, you know, I, I think to your point, a lot of people get caught up in um, gratifying their egos to live a life that shows well. And that, you know, that's fine. If that doesn't show well on a, it doesn't show well on a balance sheet. No, no. And long-term it, it may increase the time that you have to work or, or, you know, are, are less financially secure. I'm going to do a complete 180. I like to kind of mix things up uh, here. I'm going to just switch really quick because uh, I mentioned in the intro of you, you played college basketball for Greg Popovich. I did for some period of time. So how so how was that? What did you what did you learn? You know, like or dislike about being coached by a guy who's won a couple NBA championships? <laughs> well, it was it was a learning experience, and one of the things that I loved about the way that he approached uh, the game uh, and his coaching was that it was a constant education. So he was there to not only win games, but to help educate his players and not only in basketball, but in life. Mm. So he was a true mentor. He was, he acted that way. Um, and a very, you know, hard nosed competitor, but a very caring person. Mm -hmm. and, and, and highly intellectual, very, very smart. And, you know, I think some of the things that he focused on have served me well. And I remember very well to this day, uh, primarily just the message that if you can truly say that you have given it your best effort, then the outcome you can live with regardless of what it is. Great message. Yeah. Cause and that gives, that gives you the opportunity to be at peace with any situation. 
Absolutely. I think that's a good way to phrase it. Not giving up, but at peace, regardless of the outcome. Right. And I think, you know, internally, you know, whether you have given it your all. Well, this is a perfect place for me to tell you my quote that I selected for you. I select a quote for every guest. So I want to just read you a quote that I picked and I want you to just tell me how it resonates with you. If you want it, go for it. Take a risk. Don't always play it safe or you'll die wondering. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I think it suits me well. Um, you know, my, my whole life, uh, I want to say that I have lived that probably better in my younger years than in my later years, but it's, it's a philosophy that I truly, truly believe in. I have had an unorthodox journey working in, as you mentioned, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. I worked in politics for a time. I was a writer for a network television show in my 20s, uh, living in L.A., working at Universal Studios for a time. I have written uh, novels. I have written screenplays. Uh, I have worked as a printing salesman. I have, as you mentioned, you know, worked at Nike, worked at some global brands. There doesn't seem to be a real through line to the experiences I've had other than I didn't want to regret anything. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say I, I tried. I, I did that because it was important to me. So I'm glad you share that because I was aware of the, you know, your history having worked in, in government and uh, all these other diverse uh, career paths that you've had. So you know, remembering the name of the show, Clear Choices, talk to me a little bit, if you can, about how you made all these divergent choices. If I remember, you were also in the education field for a while. And that goes to my entrepreneurial uh, background as well. Yeah, I started a company in my early 20s uh, focused on education, and that was really my my first true business that I started. Mm -hmm. But you know, and, and there were, there were others, but the, the reason, uh, that I started those businesses was because I knew I would regret it if I didn't try and they weren't all successes by any means. What but, percentage would you say were a success? Uh, it's difficult to say, you know, unless you can define success specifically, mm -hmm. um, some, lasted, you know, 10 years or more, um, point inside, uh, the, uh, technology company started in 2009 and is still active. So, you know, it has provided some employment. It has, you know, done well enough to survive for this long, whether it's been an economic success or not is, is debatable, but, you know, it's certainly been uh, long lasting from a technology perspective, 10 years plus. Other businesses uh, were short-lived. The education business lasted three years, and then we had to fold it up. But do I regret having started it? Not for one minute. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. So it sounds like I, I, picked, I picked the right quote. You did. I agree with that. And I think it's inspiring when you meet people who take that approach. Yeah. I know I've been inspired. And you've, you've learned from each one of those, you know, I mean, I, I didn't count them up, but you know, eight or 10 different kind of 
career trajectories you took, they all, and I say this in my opening episode about myself too, it's like it all adds up in building blocks to make you who you are now, which has created the success you're currently having. Well, I think that's a good way to look at it. You know, with time comes perspective. And even if something doesn't go the way that you might want it to go, I mean, when I started that education company, I would have said I wanted it to last for 30 years. It lasted for three. But looking back on it, it taught me a lot. And it was a great education, no pun intended. (laughs) Um, And it's all part of the tapestry that leads you to today. And I think if you can be happy with that, and you should be happy with that, almost regardless, you, you know, again, it's this idea of you make the best choices that you can make given the information you have at any given time, and then move on without regret. I love that. So, so talk to us a little bit about in general, not just not necessarily related to your move to Mexico, nor necessarily various businesses that you've started or been involved with, but do you have a process when you're making a big decision? Like, is there a way that you would kind of break that down? How do you think about going into any one of those kind of big choices? I don't know that I would call it a process, but I do think there are some things that I consider uh, very, very strongly. You know, there, there's always the, to me, there's an intellectual side and there's more of a, an emotional slash intuitive side. Mm-hmm. And the intellectual side, of course, you go through the pros, the cons, the potential risks, the potential rewards, all of the things that you can kind of identify. But more importantly, I think, is truly intuiting what you feel about a decision. Mm -hmm. Listening to your body Mm -hmm. as to what the the quote-unquote right decision will be for you. I, I think your body doesn't lie to you. So when you're considering and projecting a future, you know if you're excited or scared or bored or frustrated, or you can listen to those emotions and understand what you really think and feel much better than the intellectual side. Now, I a hundred percent agree with you about the feeling these choices and decisions in our body somehow. And it's interesting. Like I almost feel like I'm not going to change the name of the show, but I feel like I should change, change the name of the show because with all the guests I've interviewed so far, somehow or another, I either ask a question about intuition or it comes up like you brought it up. And invariably to a T, 100% of the time, every single person has said, ultimately, you got to go with your gut. You can do all the fact checking, all the mentor, getting mentored by people. You can, you know, and you should do all these things. You should do all these logical things. And ultimately that choice comes down to your gut. As I said, I, I think, it's important to listen to yourself in that way because ultimately I think again, if you truly are conscious of your own feelings and you really know yourself, you can't go wrong listening to your gut as you put it. So I'm going to ask you a, a, 
a question about that. Your gut, because I know from talking to you prior to the show that you and your wife elected not to have children. So is that a decision that was hard or easy for the two of you? Any regrets about that? No regrets. And frankly, it wasn't even really a hard decision. You know, I think some people are meant to be parents. And in our case, we just aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never an interest. You know, I, I don't really enjoy kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, I'm not making a value judgment one way or the other. Of course um, not. Yeah. It, it's just, it was never something that we wanted to do or were interested in. And, and it didn't really come down to anything other than that. It wasn't uh, an economic decision. It wasn't a freedom decision. It was, again, just listening to ourselves and understanding, you know, are we going to do something because society expects it? Um, you know, I think there's, there is some sort of innate pressure to, to breed. I really appreciate that answer because I agree that a lot of people feel like, Hey, it's time to get married. And it's that time in my life, it's that time in my life to have kids It's that time in my life to retire. Even, you know, those are all things that are just sort of expected of us. And, and I, I really value the fact that you um, listened to that voice and said, Hey, that this isn't necessarily the thing that we want to be doing with our life. Uh, and I, I, so I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, let's go back to what brought us here, which is Mexico. So how long have you been there now? Uh, th- uh, almost three years. Well, two and a half. And overall, how would you, how would you assess it? Like, how would you assess the es- experience? I would say that it provided us everything that we, that we were seeking, um, in terms of having an adventure, experiencing another culture, giving us a change from uh, the U.S. lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, I I don't think that the the economic impact has been significant for us particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it is for a lot of people, but that really hasn't played a part for us. So I, I think it's been, it's been a great experience from the perspective of learning and doing something a little bit uh, out of the ordinary or different. And, and it was a good change for us. And is it, is it permanent or what's the, what is your time horizon around it? Well, and Interestingly enough, we have decided rather than than stay there for the planned five years that we will be coming back to the U.S. Oh, wow! Um, sooner than we expected. So within th- three less than four years, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say you know within the next probably six months. Um, what was the key factor? The most. What's the key factor driving that choice? I would say it's, it's rather than one key factor, it's a combination of things. Okay. Um, I would say a big influence uh, was what we talked about earlier, which was a desire to keep being uh, actively engaged with our work. Mm-hmm. That was difficult to do. 
um, or is difficult to do from Mexico. Yeah, you're you're a little bit more alienated or alone. It, it, you can't help but be so. Yeah, I think that's part of it. The other part of it is the infrastructure mm. um, that was difficult to deal with. Um, and this is true in many areas of Mexico. You know, your electricity will just go out for no apparent reason. There's no storm. There's no reason. It just fails. Um, same thing with the communications. Uh, internet is is horrific. Spotty. Yeah. Um, and you can't really do our work without being connected. Yeah, I totally get that. And And so what are the things, this kind of leads me to a new question, is what are the things that you most miss about the state? So you'll be back here in six months or a year or whatever it is. What are the things you're like, oh, wow, I can't wait for? The availability of good vegan food. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. We, uh, we're both, my wife and I are both vegan and it's tough to eat that way in Mexico. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really tough. They have great produce and so on, but it's been, uh, it's been a challenge. More of a challenge. So, uh, you know, again, I always like to kind of connect, uh, the theme of the show to all the various facets of your life. What were the driving factors for you guys to choose that eating habit? Uh, I, I think it it's really boils down to two things of, of equal importance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they're equal, but they're certainly both uh, critical for us. Um, one is for the ethical treatment of, of animals. Mm-hmm. And number two is, is for health. Yeah. And you, uh, uh, of course, the the prior uh, makes completely sense. Do you feel better being vegan than when you ate meat? Absolutely. Yeah. No question. Awesome. No question. Awesome. Uh, but um, uh, getting back to your your question, I didn't fully answer it um, around the the reasons that we were leaving. Uh, you know, number one is the work issue and just being connected and making that easier on ourselves. But we also missed really the cleanliness and beauty of the U.S. Uh, mm. and, and nature specifically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Mexico has some beautiful areas. Don't get me wrong. There's no question. But it's it's definitely a bit of a third world country. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit and, less well-maintained. Yeah. Um, and and we found that we missed the ease with which we could, you know, go out on a hike and and be exposed to a really pristine nature uh, that was well-protected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that was another issue. And the third and final issue I will mention, which is is an impact to us only because of the risk factor, and that is the the violence mm. that is the potential for violence in Mexico in general. I, I think it gets a bad rap. I think there's a lot of overstating that risk, but I will say that we always felt a little bit unnerved about the potential for violence. It feels less safe than. Phoenix it does generally. Most recent. And are you going back to Phoenix? Will that be your city of choice? Yes. 
Got it. Well, this is uh, this has been super interesting. So, in, in closing, Brian, you know, first of all, I just want to say, you know, you're a ideal guest for this show because you're someone who's made a lot of bold moves in your life. You've moved to different parts of the country and the world. You've moved between multiple career paths and been successful in many of them. You've played sports at an elite level and, uh, and you know, you've retired at the age of 54. So you've done a lot of uh, really amazing things that I, I believe our audience members can learn from. Is there anything in closing that you want to share with the audience that we maybe didn't cover or something about choices in general that you think would be of value? Well, I think we did cover it. Um, and, and I appreciate all, all that you said, but I, I think it is worth reiterating the importance of being honest with yourself as you consider your choices. And when I say honest with yourself, it really means listening to your gut. It means um, not fooling yourself by using your intellect to justify uh, a decision that you know in your heart really doesn't align with your values or your goals. Powerful words. I might have to think about another name for my podcast because this uh, this theme of listening to your gut keeps coming up. But Brian, you're you're a person who does that at a very high level. It served you well. I really appreciate you being on the show today. This has been another episode of Clear Choices. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Thank you so much for being part of today's episode. Today is December 18th, and it is our last episode of the year. We will be back live on January 8th. And until then, it's a great opportunity to listen to past episodes, listen to episodes that you missed, put things into practice that resonated with you. And we will be back with fantastic new material starting January 8th, 2020. Thank you so much. Have a happy new year. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Thanks for listening.